My old man worked for Hitchcock, too. Yeah. Rope. It's a masterpiece. The story wasn't any good. Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1924, and James Panko joins us to discuss three women. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. All right, hello everyone. We are here with James Panko to discuss three women, famously Ernst Lubitsch's least representative film. It is his spiritual remake of Persona, in which two women become friends and slowly swap personalities. There's so many things to get into here. Lubitsch suddenly using scope, discovering zooms. I never thought that Shelley Duvall would make a great... No, we're not talking about that three women. No. That could have gone a lot of directions. There's like five people who got that joke and what you were doing. (laughs) And they all listen to this podcast and they're all very amused. I'm sure Three Women is more well-known than any film we're covering on this whole show. By the end of being 40 years earlier than the newest one. Only 30 years. Okay, yeah, it's a spring chicken. So, yeah, we're here with James Panko. James, introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And why did you want to hop on this podcast, given that your current line of work is not exactly film-related? Yeah, gosh, who am I? I ask myself that all the time. I am your very old friend, I would say, first of all. So I wanted to do this podcast because I'm a faithful listener and I enjoy (laughs) this podcast very much. I have a background in film. We went to film school together, but I now work as a book editor and I do things like improv and musical theater performing on the side as well, which, yeah, doesn't exactly qualify me to be on a film podcast. But, you know, I'm enthusiastic about Lubitsch, I would say, as much as a regular person can be. In terms of what I love about Lubitsch, I've been a fan of his kind of casually for many years. He's got such an emotional intelligence to the way he approaches most of his characters. And there's a real kind of humanistic warmth to a lot of his films that I don't find not in the same way with many other directors, especially of this era. I think he's a very kind seeming person. Like his films just kind of radiate this kind of human joy, I would say. And yeah, it is sort of, it's nice to just kind of sit in that glow. On top of that, I think he's just a really great craftsman when he knows what he's doing. Like when he's on top of it, there's moments, even in this film, which we're going to get into like what works and what doesn't. (laughs) But I think like the moments that work are just really entrancing and really Like, he's just got this stamp that I just find irreplaceable. Like, he's just kind of enchanting in his own way as a director. So that's my rambly answer to why I'm here. So Three Women, you kind of alluded to things working and not working, but let's start with the good stuff. This is a, I might call it a dramedy. There's comic elements, there's dramatic elements. You might call the movie Capitalism and Love, right? Love and Capital where it's about the intersections between romance and class and financial transactions more than anything. And are there any moments in the film that stuck out to you as, okay, this is working, this is exemplary of what Lubitsch does well when he's doing well? Yeah, I think my favorite scene in the movie is right at the start. It's I think it's the Red Cross ball where Mm -hmm. these characters kind of meet each other. So Lamont, who's the main dude, meets Mabel Wilton at this like Red Cross party charity ball thing and 
the way Lubitsch stages this ball, I find so incredible to watch. It's got such a kinetic energy. There's this kind of swing ride that's spinning around. Mm-hmm. There's this metal slide that goes down from an upper level down to a lower level. There's couples dancing in pairs kind of all over the place in the background. And there's balloons being thrown around. Like the backgrounds of these scenes are just alive. I mean, we're no stranger to great party scenes in Lubitsch films. Yeah, right? I was reminded of the Moulin Rouge and the Merry Widow, for yeah, example. Or Maxime's, which is the Moulin Rouge and all that name in that film. Right, yeah. right. And I think that the spirit of exuberant joy in just the production design and the kind of atmosphere building mm-hmm. that Lubitsch creates there is really emblematic of like what he does, I think, when he's at his best throughout his career. If you think about it, like I've been at parties, not exactly like that, but parties that are that crowded and that like where there's like a swing thing spinning around and a slide. I don't think that would be a very fun party actually to be at. I think it would be chaotic and strange, but it looks really fun it on does. screen. You would kind of explode it a bit more. And so this is Paris, which takes this exact party configuration to these ludicrous extremes right a lot of kaleidoscopes yeah i think he's good at parties is my yeah my conclusion from this movie i can't argue that the party scenes are the high point i think the second party scene i mean gets bogged down in melodrama but the staging is lovely yeah. there's some great moments of flocks of men and women moving together yes if i had to pick out a moment there's two moments that i think really work for me in this movie aside from the party scenes which just work there's a scene where Fred wants to give Gene a bracelet and the bracelet he's put in his jacket pocket and unbeknownst to him, he has taken his jacket off and left it in the parlor. And it's a perfect romantic moment. They're out in the beautiful, huge park sized yard this house has, which is strange. And it's a very California looking New York. <laughs> <laughs> and he asks her to close her eyes. She holds out her arm and he realizes he doesn't have the bracelet in his pocket. He runs into the house and she's there left with her eyes closed holding her hand for a comically long amount of time it's a real comic bit of business but that little moment of the bracelet is what essentially causes the relationship to start splintering right it's his failure to pass this object off objects throughout this film at its best do the heavy lifting of plot machinations and emotion i love it when fred's mother lays out the little doilies yeah i think that's the last shot of the movie right or The last shot of the movie is the payoff of what happens earlier where... Right, of course. In the scene where she's expecting Fred to come home with his new fiance, he lays out the little doilies. And the way her own disappointment is communicated to us is that she, upon realizing that Fred is not coming with his fiance, dutifully puts the doilies away. Because they're all for show. But at the end of the movie, she gets to take them out for real. Which is a strange tonal turn. A strange way to end the movie. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right about objects doing a lot of heavy lifting. There's so many shots in this movie of Fred's pocket as he puts his hand in and like tries to take out this very expensive piece of jewelry he's mm-hmm. bought. Or trade a watch for. It's implied that he got yes. ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> or even when Lamont meets Mabel, Miss Wilton. What are we going to call her? Miss Wilton? So you have Jean is Ms. Wilton. Her mother is Mrs. Wilton. When Lamont meets Mrs. Wilton at this swinging Red Cross charity ball, he like zeroes in on like all these pieces of jewelry on her. Yes. And that's just sort of all he seems interested in is jewelry, 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 fancy hat. And that's sort of the way that Lubitsch conveys this whole character beat for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Objects do a lot of the, <laughs> yes. the like psychological work. 
I really appreciated the way that this film basically has a villain and the villain's name is Edmund Lamont. Yes. Um, we'll contextualize this all in a second, but Edmund Lamont's apartment I loved because it's so Edmund is this figure who he's a serial liar and a con artist, essentially. The whole plot of the film revolves around him essentially conning this middle aged single mother while also carrying on an affair with her daughter. And so his apartment in New York is this cavernous place that is, considering his own financial station, very incongruous. What it does fit with is his personality where he's compartmentalized life. His apartment's full of doors. It's the only real door action we get in this movie is characters moving throughout his apartment. And so he has all the rooms off of his central kind of corridor, his entrance hallway, and the way that he, for example, will have dinner set for his mistress in one room while also receiving his above the board lover in another room is such a great extension of his character in a way that I wish the other spaces were. Yeah. And I did wonder as I was watching those scenes, if there was a way to kind of play up the more farcical elements of this plot in terms of I mean clearly this just wasn't the movie they wanted to make but having a lot of this movie is about this guy's got multiple women on the go he's got three women on the go you might say um, ish yeah and they are sometimes in the same house at the same time but they just sort of he doesn't really heighten the drama around that particularly yeah whenever that dramatic situation is brought up it feels like it's going to be a marriage circle type thing where there's great scenes in the marriage circle where the separation of rooms is used for dramatic effect yeah in this one it's usually introduced and resolved within a minute yeah i mean you're getting at i think the big elephant in the room in this film which is that tonally it's very odd even though it's not actually outside of what lubich is doing at this point in his career in terms of his wheelhouse yeah so this film i should again we don't do plot summaries in this podcast but this is the film so obscure I think it's his least seen of his surviving American silence. And so, you know, it concerns basically a three-way love affair between a con artist man and a mother and a daughter. Yeah, 18-year-old daughter. Yeah, 18-year-old and a 40-something mother. And so in the opening scenes, the film feels like it's going to be in line with perhaps the marriage circle tonally, where at this point in his career, Lubitsch was in his American films really hitting upon this really interesting high wire act tonally, where his Berlin films all fall into either Teutonic comedies or heaving melodramas. There's no real in between. The flame was a small scale heaving melodrama, but you have those two genres essentially. And when you move to America, he started making these like very pathos inflected comedies, mostly. And sometimes he'd have comedic inflected tragedies, such as in Student Principal Heidelberg. In this one, it starts out feeling like, okay, we've got a marriage circle on our hands. There's a little bit of pathos. There's actual hurt here. There's sadness, but it's largely a lark. That first party scene is very fun and silly. But the film settles into this rhythm of it almost feels like a melodrama, but in a very minor key with some comedy. Yeah, I agree with that. I felt it was certain Lubitsch ticks aside. It felt like a melodrama that could have been directed by any number of competent directors. Mm -hmm. It feels very, well, that's a bit tonally all over the place, but tonally indistinct. Yeah. And seems pretty out of context with the rest of Lubitsch's work. Like even the opening scene of The Marriage Circle is the guy putting on his sock and there's a giant hole in his sock. And like, there's just this sort of kind of brief gag of like, my sock's got a hole in it. And there's nothing like that in this movie at all. There's no kind of 
if this podcast is about the Lubitsch touch and how would Lubitsch do it, I feel this is the least Lubitschy film I've seen of his. It feels like one of the most anonymous films yeah. of his American era. Like it has very little personality on his end, I would say. I think even, I mean, I won't say even worse because I think worse would be no personality. But in this case, it feels like it starts with some personality and it slowly kind of almost just peters up as it goes along. Yeah. In that regard where... And that gets us to the ending, which I found very odd. It's a weird ending. It's very pre-code in a very specific way. And we are, again, some definitions, we're in the pre-code era right now. Some we aren't. I'll let the academics debate it. But the film climaxes in a very big melodramatic scene where our villain, Edmund Lamont, is fighting with Mrs. Winton. And it gets to a point where he ends up essentially blackmailing her so that he can stay with her daughter. Because he and her daughter are married. She is delivering an ultimatum to him. And it gets to a point when she shoots him. <laughs> there is a struggle for a gun. She shoots him. At this point, you know, she's guilty of murder. I think you could say at the very least. Yep. It's second degree, <laughs> but it's murder. She's a murderer, right? She has killed a man. And she says to her daughter, now you are free. Exactly. Which, again, that is in some ways a noble thing. I guess she killed the bad guy. But anyway, we'll get to what happens after that. Because there's a murder trial. The film turns into a very brief courtroom drama. And she says something to the jury, the mom. We aren't privy to exactly what she says, but we can assume it's something about how she was protecting her daughter from this horrible man. And they let her go. The jury says, you know what? You might have killed the man and we know you did it. And we're letting you go. It's very weird. She says she doesn't regret killing the guy she killed. She regrets being a frivolous and bad mother. Yes. And that's her big crime. And then, yeah, they let her go and she hugs her daughter and everything's kind of OK. I've been binging a lot of pre-code films like Babyface is interesting. That's the Barbara Stanwyck film. She spends the entire film misbehaving. And at the end, there's a comedic note where her boyfriend takes out a hit on one of the villains of the film. And essentially, the film ends on a joke wherein they're both complicit in a mob hit of the bad guy. And the film laughs it off. It's like, isn't that funny? And right. This weirdly feels more transgressive than babyface because in this case it genuinely feels like i don't understand the mechanics of this world where this character gets away with murder i don't understand the moral mechanics of the film where somehow this murder that this main character has committed in this film that is fundamentally i think kind of serious at least it's fundamentally melodramatic it's not a goofy comedy where it's like you know it's not the oyster princess i don't understand what they were going with with that ending i think the movie hasn't set up that ending is the problem because I think there's a way where you could do that ending like Chicago the musical has Cell Black Tango the song about these women who killed their asshole husbands or boyfriends and you're rooting for them because you're like yeah these dudes are assholes and you know who can blame these women for wanting to do what they did and we kind of go along for that as an audience and in this movie Lamont is he's like a bad dude but he's not He's just interested in money. Like, that's his bad characteristic. And he's kind of two-timing these women as well. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not a great guy, but he's not built up to be like this manipulative, conniving, abusive asshole that you want to see die. It just sort of happens. And so it doesn't feel like coherent yeah. for the crime to just be like, oh, well, like, you know. He was a dick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he deserved to die. Yeah. And it feels like, I mean... After seeing enough of these films where the film kind of ends on reveling and some sort of like people getting away with it. This film's a good cautionary tale in the risks of not setting that up tonally, I guess. Well, I mean, it's weird because I think the other thing about this movie that struck me is how it sort of uses like this kind of moralistic shorthand sometimes instead of creating characters. Like this struck me most with the way that Mrs. Wilton is built up as this kind of 
quote unquote frivolous woman because she's weighing herself on a scale and she's always looking in the mirror at her face and she's bemoaning how she's aged and she's not Mm. spending time with her daughter. And there's this sort of like, I mean, it just kind of feels misogynist to me, but it's this weird energy of like this woman who cares about her appearance so much is like that kind of stereotype is doing a lot of legwork instead Mm -hmm. of her actually having a personality it's just this sort of moral judgment being placed on her as a character like she's acting out this script of i'm a vain silly woman you should judge me i feel that's getting imposed onto her instead of like any kind of internal psychology of the character and i feel that's true with uh, lamond as well like he's just very sort of 'er ne'er-do-well rake who you know needs money like i don't know what Okay, there are three women in this movie who are with him, and I don't know what they see in him because he's just sort of around. I don't understand his charisma. I don't understand his like what he brings to the table. He has no money. Like what? I guess he's he seems to be like sexually attractive, and that's sort of just the way it's all these informed traits though, right? Yeah. When the film gets closest to working, it's when it actually establishes a causal relationship between okay, Mabel, the mom, is a negligent mother. And she is essentially almost starving her daughter of love by neglecting her. Her daughter comes to visit. And when faced with this neglect, Edmund Lamont is a shoulder to lean on and they connect and she almost gets her revenge on her mom by having this affair with him. Mm -hmm. So you have this identifiable cycle of essentially hurt between these characters. Yeah. And that works for me, but it all feels tremendously schematic. Yeah, that's a good word. That's a good way to put it. Where in the case of, for example, the marriage circle, you have, just to take one example, you have the Adolf Menju character who wants to divorce Mitzi. And immediately, by the strength of his casting and the little business that Lubitsch gives him with the exercise machine at the beginning of the film, even just the way he is blocked in the scenes, the way that he reacts when looking at people, the wonderful way that Adolf plays him. You can glean a lot about his character from just a couple of shots. Not a single one of the principles in this film feels like there's that level of texture. I think Paulina Frederick, who plays the older Mrs. Wilton, gets the closest maybe because there's actual pathos on her face. You can see her kind of weighing her decisions at a certain point. She makes at least one character decision that feels unexpected when she forgives her daughter immediately. I thought that was my favorite character turn in the film. But for example, Edmund Lamont, he feels like, I mean, one Lou Cody is not, he plays the surface. He isn't giving us much below just this kind of rather hateful slightly rakish mustachio gentleman yeah i think he's the biggest liability of the movie because the entire movie basically hinges on him being charming enough that you believe these really rich women are throwing themselves at this guy mm-hmm. and i like for the life of me couldn't understand other than the fact that he's been designated the main character of this movie i don't know why they're interested literally mabel the mom falls for him after she goes down the slide at this party and she's sort of a little like dizzy as she stands back up and Lamont catches her and like holds her for like two seconds and then she walks away and another person says to Lamont you know how much that woman you just held in your arms is worth she's yeah. worth three million dollars and then Lamont she's the richest you know, widow in Marshovia yeah yeah and it's like that's great that establishes why Lamont is interested in her but like she's suddenly really interested in him after like literally interacting with him for two seconds. It feels like a beat that works great in like an oyster princess or a Romeo and Juliet in the snow where you have the actors making bug eyes at each other and flailing their arms. Yeah. And you know, well, they're in love. Isn't this goofy? 
Yeah, and I think it works if he is also like an oyster baron or something, you know, or an oil baron or a prince or some kind of high status person that someone like her would be interested in just on the basis of his position. But when he's been established as being incredibly in debt and basically like he needs money, that's his entire character in this movie is Mm -hmm. he's in debt and he needs money. Yeah, there's nothing he does to really kind of like establish who he is i feel that's the thing this movie's missing both on the performance level and in the script he needs to just do something to kind of be roguish and charming and you know make a move that she would find funny or mm-hmm. be a, find attractive or be curious about as it is i'm just like why is this happening at all and it happens not just with one woman but then with her daughter and, and then, then with, with a random third woman as well Harriet. yeah yeah We should talk about the three women, the title three women. Yeah, it feels unearned. The titular three women are the three women that Edmund sleeps with. Yes. Or is romantically involved with. It's not. I don't get the title. I mean, there's a lot of titles in this series that I don't get. Where's my treasure is the Ur example. But um, (laughs) the treasure was the three women we found along the way. When I watched this last night, I texted you, why isn't this movie called Two Women? Because the third woman is literally in it for like five minutes, maybe. And she's such a minor character. There are other women in this movie who have more screen time than the third woman. I think this is very notable. Including Fred's mom. (laughs) Fred's mother has significantly more screen time. Fred, who is the romantic interest of the daughter, the other romantic interest. Mary Prevost plays the third woman who is not the mother and daughter. We might know her as Mitzi from The Marriage Circle. She's great at playing, I'd say, like a woman who have something kind of against the world and are taking it out by having affairs. Yeah, in this movie, she's literally just a woman who shows up because... Lamond is cheating on his wife with her. She's a plot device. She could be anyone. I don't. Does she have any? She has like a line or two. Maybe she shows up and then she vanishes. But she shows up long enough for Fred to see that Lamont is being unfaithful to his wife, mm-hmm. his wife, who Fred is still in love with. So that then kind of kicks into gear the final chain of events of the movie. But she's yeah, she's a plot function. They were like, put a floozy in right here. And then. Yeah, that's what happens. She's Mary Provost. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still think Love and Capital is the perfect title for the film. It would have gone over great in 1920s Hollywood. They loved <laughs> Marx. <laughs> but this film is the one I struggle of all the 20s Lubitsch's to say much about, at least the American ones, because it really feels like everything this does, if this was film on its own and there was no other Lubitsch films, I mean, it would have been probably forgotten completely. But if there weren't films that did things better than it, they were similar, I would have more to say. But so this is Paris exists. Lady Windermere's fan exists. The marriage circle exists. Rosita exists. Those are all films that essentially, if you combine the Venn diagram of what those films do well, it completely covers Three Women. Three Women is a great example of a film that I don't think it's bad. It's a perfectly competent movie. I cannot say there's a single element in this film that fails or is anything less than like a professional piece of work, which is more than you can say about some of his Berlin films. Again, those are for, for obvious reasons. But it's fully replacement level, lowest common denominator, has the barest examples of what Lubitsch does well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like I said, I do think most of this movie could have been directed by anybody. Although I do also think there's some degree of like you can kind of learn a lot about a director, I think, by kind of looking at their failures and looking at when their movie isn't really firing on all cylinders. What are they still managing to pull off pretty well? And I think he's got this movie still has like he's got such a good eye for production design. He's got such a Mm -hmm. good idea for like how to kind of block actors in a space. He's got just the kind of the simple mechanics of, you know, these two characters are fighting in a scene like he's got 
a good way of like orchestrating a lot of those. I think there's a lot of you can still see the skill kind of at play, even if it's not always working. I mean, you have a lot of other stuff. A lot of the craft stuff is working great. I mean, the lighting I love, this film is spectacularly well lit. Yeah. Especially on the faces. There's this kind of typical Charles Van Anger, soft sources, kind of shaping characters' faces in very dramatic ways, in ways that actually, I think, do more to express character than a lot of other elements in this film. When Jean is being lit in a certain way that her eyes kind of glisten when she's really being scandalized by what her mother's doing, that's doing a lot of heavy lifting emotionally. So I think, you know, Charles Van Anger's work here is really quite something. You have the art direction is, you know, some wonderful kind of art deco adjacent stuff being done by Sven Gade. I probably am not pronouncing that name right. But again, it's a piece of Hollywood product that Lubitsch is directing. And it's all right, but it's, you know. Do you think that's what it is? Do you think for whatever reason, he was just a hired gun on this project that where do you think this fits in in terms of his own kind of professional biography? Because this isn't his first American film. No, it's his third. Yeah. But maybe it's one he took on because I'm just wondering how he gets to a place where he's directing a movie that feels like it has so little of his personal stamp on it. Never underestimate the ability of great directors to misjudge a script, right? I mean, Lubitsch has done that numerous times, right? And I mean, almost every great director has, right? Where it's... He co-wrote this though, didn't he? No, well, he, I don't think he ever technically was credited as co-writing everything. He basically did. I mean, he's basically co-written, but it's like you can also be the writer and misjudge, right? Right. I've been guilty of that. And so you have, in this case, I mean, Hans Crawley, it should be noted, this is Hans Crawley's big Hollywood debut. He's finally come over from Germany to work with Lubitsch. And, you know, you might remember him from such films as almost all of Lubitsch's Berlin work. And, you know, this could be growing pains for Hans. I mean, he would do much better work later in Hollywood with Lubitsch before he ran away with Lubitsch's wife and torched his own career. That's a story for a different day. But in this case, it just feels very flat, like the screenplay being, you know, the dramatics, the character writing. I think it's worth noting that I can't think of many extremely well-rounded characters that Hans wrote in the Berlin era. My favorite characters that Hans wrote are Ossie Oswalda and Ossie Oswalda and Ossie Oswalda. (laughs) It's these cartoons. And maybe he hadn't yet achieved the adeptness with more rounded characters with the register that Lubitsch was working in in Hollywood until later. That could be it. Yeah, it's interesting because I think in comedy, there's you can make a well-rounded comedy character out of just a couple elements. And Lubitsch is sort of king of examples of this where you you get a guy and he's got this weird exercise machine after he gets out of bed and suddenly you kind of have a sense of who this guy is. And yeah, and that's all writing, goes, right? Yeah. yeah, in the world. And in this movie, I just feel all these characters feel like, to greater or lesser degrees, but they feel like stock characters. Like we're sort of supposed to know who they are without being told because they're just like, here's one or two traits and you kind of fill in the rest. It's very kind of gestural in terms of character development. I find it interesting where one kind of debate I have with people or, you know, Lubitsch scholars and stuff is I often ask myself, okay, so, I mean, in this film, I can see in like the finer weave of the fabric, Lubitsch's skill, right? I see it in how he does it. Same with something like Monte Carlo later on. And yet the framework doesn't add up to a film I think is a very good movie. And compare that to, you know, maybe a work by someone known as a journeyman, like, you know, Ruben McMillian's Love You Tonight or something where it's, I kind of miss the finer points of the weave, right? I'm missing the little details that I can always tell that Lubitsch puts there and the thoughtfulness for character. But that film has amazing fireworks going on in a totally different register. Three Women presents a particular struggle where am I to judge the film by the clear 
undeniable talent and care being put into the finer details by Lubitsch in the direction? Or am I choosing to be put off by the weaknesses and the overall dramatics, which are more of a thing that the Hollywood studio system imposes upon itself and, you know, mainstream cinema imposes upon itself as a prerequisite for great movies, right? You know, am I here just for the really great staging in the party scene? To what degree should I ought to be put off by thin characterization, basically, compared to the finer points of, oh, this blocking is actually pretty interesting. The finer points of the character, like the title card, the timing, the editing is all on point. But it's all in service of, you know, a narrative that I think is rather weak. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you said it, if the interesting things in this movie weren't also readily available in other movies, maybe this would be more interesting. Maybe it would be like, oh, my gosh, look, the plot is sort of a mess. But look at this party scene. It's like nothing he ever did otherwise. And I mean, we've just got other examples, I guess. And it isn't, you know, quite as notable even on that level, maybe. The weird thing as well is that this movie doesn't feel like it takes place in what you've often called on this podcast, like Lubitsch land. There's no kind of... It's New York. Yeah. Which is odd. And it's just sort of any movie's version of New York. There's no... Mm -hmm. It feels like it's trying to be a realistic place. And it just kind of feels flat. That's. I mean, think of it this way. You could replace... There's like two or three establishing shots of New York. They're clearly second unit or stock footage. You could replace those with Vienna. The film wouldn't change at all. Yeah. In fact, the film would make more sense because we haven't talked about this yet. There is so much open boozing in this movie. There's so much alcohol, so many open bottles of champagne. The film was shot in and takes place in Prohibition era America, which is an odd fit. And to me, I mean, there's a lot of good arguments for why that's not a problem. And Lord knows that the people of the higher classes could probably drink more openly than like working class people who are relegated to boozing in gangster films and speakeasies. (laughs) But it's still like the degree to which prohibition doesn't seem like a factor in this is really interesting to me. Point being, though, this film is so diffuse with its location that doesn't really matter. And moreover, you know, again, the film would probably make more sense if it was Paris. I do wonder if you made a fan cut of the film and just changed the title card to Paris and put like period appropriate pillow shots. Would the film play as Paris? I bet it would. That'd be interesting to think about. I mean, the other strange thing is Mrs. Wilson lives in New York and her daughter at the start of the film is in Berkeley, California. And there's this sort of dynamic between them about like, you never come visit me. Or, you know, the mom never goes out to California to visit her daughter. And even when she's turning 18 years old. And so then the daughter comes into New York. And I'm just like, this is the 1920s. This journey takes like a week on a train. Yeah. It's not just some kind of like, oh, pop my butt down to LAX and get on a five hour flight. Like it's an ordeal. Fred casually comes to New York. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I mean, like these people are acting like California is New Jersey. Like, (laughs) and it just, Mm -hmm. you know, took them a couple hours. But, you know, that's a minor problem compared to. Things we've talked about already. Maybe Lubitsch and Hans are new to North America and haven't really internalized. They're still on European distance measurements. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, we can go to Paris for the weekend. We're in Berlin, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Which you could do on a train. The film as a whole feels like everything is a slight placeholder for a more interesting thing that they never put in. Yeah. There's so many obvious comparisons, even in Paulina Frederick's performance. Irene Dunn played a very similar character a year later in Lady Windermere's Fan. And it's a masterful performance. It's aching. It's poetic. It's comic. And it feels like, again, I think Pauline comes the closest in this film to succeeding in creating a character that I remember. But it's still, again, it's comparatively an empty vessel, uh, the character. I just want to register that my favorite line of dialogue in the movie is after one character eats a bunch of like pastries and then pretends to fall (laughs) asleep and the other characters come into the room and say, you really enjoyed a delicious sleep. And I thought that was delightful. 
I do want to quickly mention the film's restoration and current status because season three is, if anything, a desert of restorations, at least publicly available restorations. That's surprising to me. I know it's for whatever reason, his American silence have been neglected in a way that I just think, you know, the efforts of the FW Murnau Stiftung and others have really brought out his Berlin films. His American silence have only been restored more recently. And in two episodes from now, when we talk about Lady Windermere's fan, we'll hear Dave Kirsch talk about that. But about half the season has been lovingly restored, but it's totally unavailable. Those are the mm. four museum modern art restorations. At least they're totally unavailable unless you are a cinema that books them. In this case, though, we have a beautiful George Eastman Museum restoration with music by Andrew Earl Simpson that I think fits the movie perfectly. It's newly composed and conducted, which means it wasn't based off of an original. Maybe there's notes or something. As far as I know, it's new. And I think the score fits the movie perfectly. It's very well done. It does its best to weave together a tonal framework that works. The image is sometimes rocky because of the source materials, but it's beautiful to look at. And so it's nice to see that such a, I always say a minor in every sense, Lubitsch work has been given such a nice restoration. I think the only other film of this season that has a publicly available fantastic restoration as of this recording is So This Is Paris. But the rest are all either unavailable or in dire straits, which is really unfortunate. Why do you think that is compared to like the German silence? I think it's mostly happenstance of history. Like as far as the American films go, his sound stuff is so much more famous. Like what are you going to release first? To be or not to be or forbidden paradise, right? right. You're going to release to be or not to be first. Versus the Berlin stuff, I mean, a lot of that is sitting in German archives. And if I'm like the Munich Film Museum, or if I'm the F.W. Murnau Stiftung, I'm not releasing the American ones. That's what the Americans to do. Right. So we release the German ones. And so, you know, in the early 2010s, the German films got this beautiful release from Eureka that combined a lot of the F.W. Murnau restorations. And it's just out there again. They're not perfect. They're actually updating a few. I believe Mary Jail's getting a new restoration as we speak, which is great. But even the Berlin stuff, right? Like Carmen, I've seen the restoration. It's beautiful. Not available on home video. Meyer from Berlin just came out last week on home video, which is you know, not a good movie, but it now looks representative. <laughs> so that's nice. Well, I wonder if part of it is, it seems from my listening to this podcast that like Lubitsch has always been revered in Germany as a great director. And in America, he's sort of, he's not the first person that comes to mind when people think yeah. great kind of directors of this era. Which is really weird because in his time, he was tops yeah. in America. Like he was starting with the mid 20s, basically. He was widely considered one of the greatest directors in the world in Hollywood. Yeah. Right. I mean, he rocked the world multiple times. And then he, you know, I think part of it was he died too early. He died in the late 40s, and that was a good decade before the first serious wave of film scholarship started to interview everyone. David Callett mentions this in the To Be or Not To Be commentary that virtually everyone at that point who worked in a major role in To Be or Not To Be was dead at that point. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. It's just one of those happenstances of history, right? It's why I mean, Fritz Long, John Ford, Hitchcock, Howard Hawks, all of those people lived into ripe old age and could give their testimonies. And they're also not comic directors. Lubitsch right. did comedy. He was not purely a comedy director, but his most famous stuff is all comedies. You know, comedy tends to not linger in the cultural memory as long, unless your name rhymes with Blakespeare. <laughs> but, and just isn't taken as seriously. I still hear people say, oh, Lubitsch wanted to be taken seriously. That's why he made Brooklyn Lullaby. And I'm just like, well, the comedies are the serious thing. Yeah. That's as serious as an artistic endeavor. So, you know, it's, eh, history sucks. The other thing I wondered about this restoration just as I was watching is, and I don't know if you know anything about this, but do you know if the original had any tinting or anything involved? Because this restoration is straight black and white, but I wasn't sure if there was any like original tinting or if we know anything about that. 
it can be really tough to know. Tinting was incredibly common in the silent film period. Lots and lots of silent films were tinted. And yet, due to a few reasons, some I think legitimate, some I think due to just carelessness, they're often not restored with the tinting. The reason for that is that the prints are tinted. You don't tint the negative. Right. You tint the print. And so, I mean, we can think of modern parallels. I always bring up Do the Right Thing. Do the Right Thing is a film that should be very orange, but for years on its digital versions was not orange because it was color timed orange at a stage in the process after the negative. It wasn't shot with an orange filter. And so similarly, a silent film, you need to basically find like an old nitrate print to know if the tinting is there. Example of this would be The Oyster Princess, Meyer from Berlin, Carmen were all released at various points without tinting, you know, in digital versions and has since been one way or another restored with tinting. I don't want to be a man. Also, One Hour With You is an interesting example, too. Have you seen One Hour With You? No. Oh, you'll see it. You'll see it. I'll make sure you watch it at some point. One Hour With You, I, for the longest time, thought it was never supposed to be tinted, but there is a tinted nitrogen print from the era that has been transferred to Laserdisc. And yet the Blu-ray and Criterion, when they released it, were not interested in the tinting. Maybe the tinting was a one-off thing and the documentation is so obscure that I'm not aware of it. But as far as I know, I've gotten word from someone who knows the person who restored it, that reliable word, that the film was at some point supposed to be tinted. There's so many reasons why it might not carry through. But yeah, it's tough. And sometimes it's speculative. Like, I believe it's the release of Carmen where they say up front, we know it was tinted and this tinting is informed guesses. Right. You know, so sometimes you have to do that. And what's more accurate, not tinting it when you don't know how it was tinted or trying your best to replicate the best practices of the era. It's right. tough to know. I know with Forbidden Paradise, they had to basically guess the moment did in terms of the tinting. That's my rant. That went long. No, it's interesting. But no, I think as far as this era goes, I mean, the only tinted versions of his American silence are the MoMA restorations. And the Marriage Circle has CPN stuff, but it's very minimal. I guess that's a MoMA. MoMA restoration has tinting and that's forthcoming. But let's think. This film, no tinting. Better than 50% odds it was tinted at some point. So this is Paris. I would also say that better than 50% of that was supposed to be tinted. Student Prince, Ditto, Eternal Love probably, and none of those have tinted versions available. You know, we've been two dudes talking about three women. Thank you so much for coming, James. Yeah, this is fun. I'm so glad I had the chance to be here. This was for those listening. Our season three has a shocking amount of in-person recordings. If you notice, the banter is livelier than usual. That's why. So, oh my gosh, banter. We yeah. have banter. We have banter. See everyone later. Take it easy and see you with Forbidden Paradise, I guess. Although I'll cut this. <laughs> Next week, Will Ross joins us to discuss Forbidden Paradise. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. Griffin Shield was our dialogue editor for this episode. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 